Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is the focus of our attention this morning. And I've got a quite deliberately a book before and after shot there. And um, a young man, I don't know this young man, this was pulled down from the internet, um, a young man named Noah. A young man named Noah who experienced cancer. And if you look at the, the image there, while he was receiving treatment for cancer, how that had a impact, a significant impact upon his being, his appearance, but also we know only too well internally. The pain, the worry for young Noah during that period of time. And of course, not just for him, but for his family, his loved ones, etc. But then in this case, it was a happy ending because young Noah is a survivor of cancer. And look at the difference in the image. A young, healthy young man, full of potential, full of hope for the future, before and after. When we consider Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and I want to suggest to you that if you're not aware of it, it really is a masterpiece. A masterpiece because in just 10 verses, Paul summarises powerfully what it took him half of the book of Romans to say, what it took him half of the book of Galatians to say, In just ten profound verses, he summarises the gospel in terms of before and after. This is an interesting before and after image. The skyline of Manila before and after undergoing quarantine in recent years with the COVID pandemic. Many of us are well acquainted with the idea of going into quarantine and here's a major city, and I don't, I don't expect that it was any different for, for many of the major cities the world over. When human activity was suppressed and the wheels of industry were brought to a halt as a consequence of quarantine, look at the difference, look at the difference to the environment. And this is a before and after image that I want to present to you to carry forward as we continue in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Because I want you to remember that the before picture, to be living in, in this case Manila, but any other major city for the most part, the population were quite blissfully unaware of the poison that they were breathing quite unaware for the most part of the, the hostile environment that they were living in, hostile to their health and their well-being. And it's only when we have the radical change and we can look at the after picture that we can marvel at what a difference. What a difference. Which city would you rather live in? This again just randomly taken down. I'm not one of those people that troll through the internet looking for cat pictures. Though some people do that stuff. I mean, I just don't relate to it at all. But this served my purposes. I rescued this cat off the street, says some anonymous person, 
photos before and after, one year difference. And what a difference a year makes. Look at that feral cat. And I mean, you'd, with, the, with the kindest of heart, you'd reach out to try and, and you know you'd get your hands scratched and bitten. Feral. But within the space of 12 months, being loved and cared for, what a difference. What a difference. Even I could imagine patting a purring creature like that. Before and after. Before and after. Let's read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 10 and to sort of, I guess, get the stage set in our minds. I've selected um, Eugene Peters' The Message to give us the big picture of Paul's narrative. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it, all of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own and with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now, God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea, all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. Now, there are a lot of ways we could break this down and summarize. Here are a few that, that various Bible scholars, etc., have suggested. Um, wandering from God, waking to God, watching for God, working with God. Another possibility, why do we need grace? How does grace work? What is distinctive about grace? And what difference does grace make? All of those movements and all of those themes are evident in these short ten verses. God's removal of sins, the removal of the penalty for sin, the removal of the power of sin, the removal ultimately of the very presence of sin 
reaching as it were from creation right through to new creation. Come walk with me. Come walk with me and marvel at how in so few words Paul can speak about the wonders of God in such eloquent terms. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he describes here in very pointed, blank terms. We were dead. Now remember, he's addressing Christians. He's not speaking of the world. We share that condition, all humanity. We were dead. And of course, when the Bible talks about death, Fundamentally, primarily, it's talking about separation. If our mind goes to things like, uh, you know, like non-existence or annihilation or some such thing, then that, that can be, I guess, in the background. But the fundamental, core meaning, the essence of death in Scripture is separation. That's why you remember when God warned Adam and Eve Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of any other tree in the garden, but that one tree, you stay away from that. Because in the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And you remember Satan's response to to undermine God? You You won't die. Go for it. Go for it. But sure enough, according to God's promise, God's warning, They did eat and the consequence was death. And someone will say, well, they didn't fall over. They didn't drop dead in that. No, 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 no. But see, they were separated. They were separated at that very point. When we hear death in scripture, that's the image above all that we should have in our mind. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And this is an interesting distinction that Paul makes and it's important for our understanding, of, of again, of the human condition. Trespass speaks of rebellion. I know what God says and I don't care what God says. That's, that's the spirit of rebellion. But you know... This other word, sin, harmatia in, 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 in the Greek, missing the mark. Apparently it was a, a, a common term in the, among the Greeks of uh, the first century to speak, for example, of, a, of an archer that might be shooting at a target and they miss the target. That's the image that we want to get. You know, you fall short or you go to the side or you go too long. You're just missing the target. And I suspect with most of humanity, it's more sin of that nature than a conscious, deliberate, in-your-face God rebellion. There's a good deal of that happens. 
But for most of us human beings, I think it's more a, an unwitting, if you will, rebellion against God than a witting, intentional rebellion against God. But it's a missing the mark, it's a falling short, it is sin nonetheless. Perhaps if we were to cast our mind back to that, that before and after image of the city of Manila, you'll remember. The city before quarantine, covered in a bed of pollution. And most of the people going about their daily lives, largely ignorant, blissfully ignorant perhaps, of the environment that they were living in and how harmful that was. Isaac and Mel would be sensitive to that sort of thing, I imagine, and probably would choose not to live in a, in a, in a city like Manila for that very reason. But most of us, no problem, simply because it's what we're accustomed to and because the effects to our detriment are so subtle and small We just don't notice it until very often it becomes too late when it's manifest with a lung condition or some some terrible disease. This is important for us to understand. Sin affects all humanity. I don't know what your experience is, but but when when I've chatted with, with unbelievers today... Very often what I almost marvel at is a lack of sensitivity or awareness of the concept of sin. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't even believe in God, but even if he did exist, then I'm a good person, so what's his problem? That sort of, that sort of thinking. And I suspect it's kind of like a person living in a polluted city when you're trying to warn them of the health hazards that they're exposing themselves to. They what problem? I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. What are you talking about? You're just a, an alarmist. When we depreciate sin, we depreciate the value of what Christ has done what God has done in Christ, and our need for Christ. Our need to change our address. (laughs) Sorry, I went in the wrong direction. Paul describes a people who were once walking, remember he's addressing Christians now at this time, speaking of their past, once walked at following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The image says walking, meandering. And I think the best way I could express this would be drawing on my own experience, going to a mall, shopping mall. I kind of like it, but it usually doesn't go well for me because I end up spending money I didn't want to spend. I end up buying something I had no idea I needed before I saw it. And, of course, I could have well done without the expense. I could have well done without the item. 
But it's a result of just going in and window shopping, aimlessly having a wander around, which is a pleasant experience. But in that wandering, I'm kind of winding myself up to be the, a victim, really, a sucker, to, to the cleverness of all of those advertising gurus and, and all of the people that make a lot of money working for department stores that design things to lure you in. You feel like that little fish that sort of gets bait dropped in front of you all the time and you sort of, that sort of thing. That's the sort of image that Paul is using to describe humanity. We're just wandering and we're being drawn to the various baits that we might encounter along the way. And so wittingly, or as I suggested, mostly unwittingly, we become a servant of Satan. We think we're serving ourselves. When I go to a mall without any particular purpose, I think I'm there because I'm in charge and I'm, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm exposing myself to a great deal of danger. I'm exposing myself to influences that, and here's the, the marvel of it, that I, without me even being aware of it, I'm being manipulated and I'll play the game unwittingly. He speaks of universal human condition. When he speaks of the flesh, for Paul... Paul is not talking as a, um, a Platonist or in any sort of philosophical way that might have been influenced by the school of thought of Plato where there is a dualism between you know, the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is evil, the, the spirit is good. There's been a whole lot of mistaken thinking in that regard when that sort of idea is is laid over Paul. Paul was not a Platonist. When he talks about the flesh, he's not opposed to the body, as if the body is evil in some sense, or as if the body is a reservoir for uh, the evil activities of, of Satan. He is talking about human life that is lived apart from God. A human life that is lived without reference to God. When we talk about living in the flesh, Paul assumes the unity of the body and the spirit. We are not spirits captive in a body. That's Greek thinking. That's Plato. We are biblically embodied spirits. Our spirits are integrated with and animate our bodies, but our bodies are nonetheless a legitimate part of the way God has made us. And again, this might surprise you, might shock you, but I'll remind you of Paul's teaching that the Christian hope is for a bodily resurrection. It'll be a glorified body, an incorruptible body, but it will nonetheless be a body. Death is separation of the body and the spirit. Remember, separation. Resurrected life is a reuniting of body and spirit. 
habitual sinners, and I guess this is a bit that's sort of a bit somewhat controversial for many, um, we are not depraved, and, and I want you to listen carefully to this, we are not depraved because we are born that way. The idea that we're dead on arrival with the guilt inherited from Adam. That's a very common assumption among believers. Original sin, total depravity, various labels are given to it. But the idea, the common denominator is we arrive stillborn into this world spiritually. We are not depraved because we are born that way. We become depraved through our own practice of sin. Following in the steps of Adam, certainly. Following his example. But the blame, the responsibility belongs to us. Not some condition that we were born with beyond our control because of something that Adam did so many generations ago. And I want to emphasise that because in my experience in the church, uh, most do recognise that this idea of inherited sin, etc., in whatever fashion, is not what the Bible teaches. But I fear that there's a bit of a pendulum swing in the other direction that, that leads us to be entirely optimistic about humanity and human motivation, human behaviour. We are sinful, not because we were born that way, but because we have well-practised sinners and that that sinfulness in our life has a corrupting influence upon us, in our behaviour, in our thinking, etc., etc. There are two theological views of the human story. Number one, and this incidentally is the one that I recommend, we begin in the garden with God, born in a state of innocence. But after Adam... Creation has become corrupted due to sin. We are born into a world that is largely hostile towards God. We live in a world that is polluted. Remember that image of Manila, the before picture. And we'd be naive to think that being born into such an environment, we're going to be unaffected by the environment. The same naivety would, would apply in terms of our being born innocent. Yes, that's our starting point in this world. But this world is a polluted world, corrupted by sin. Not just individuals' sins, but systemic sin. Human culture largely has grown up in a fashion to dishonour God, not to honour God. And systemically, sin has permeated such things, such institutions, etc. We'd be as naive to think that that doesn't affect us as we would be to think we can live in a polluted city and it not have respiratory consequences for us. 
We are born into a world that is largely hostile towards God. We rebel, as did Adam and Eve, and we become separated from God and from others, including ourselves, and from the non-human creation. Again, sin brings death, and death is separation. Separation from God, separation from one another, people against people. Even intrapersonally, within ourselves, ourself against ourself. You know, we talk in terms of things like, you know, mental health, etc. Today, and we talk in pretty sophisticated psychological terms. And all of that is evidence of this precisely this simple issue of sin and the separation that it brings, even within ourselves, the fracturing within ourselves. And of course, our alienation, our separation from the non-human creation environment around us. Sin is like an illness, a spiritual disease. We are nonetheless capable of responding to God. Remember that point. We are nonetheless capable of responding to God. It sounds like they're doing the Jericho thing in there, blowing the trumpets. The imago Dei, the image of God, the image of God in in which we are made, is obscured but not obliterated. It's messed up but it's still there, like a broken mirror. The image is fractured, the image is messed up but it's still there, sufficient that we can still connect with God of our will, of our choice. Messiah brings forgiveness and healing. And two, Messiah's example also prepares humanity for the next stage in God's original purposes for creation. That is, it's telos, it's end goal in the new heavens and the new earth. The second image, and and, and I'd be interested to, to know if you're thinking, that sounds familiar. After Adam, we all begin outside the garden. Notice the big difference in the beginning point. We don't start in the garden innocent, and then through our choices to sin find ourselves expelled. And obviously I'm referring to almost like as a a primordial model, if you will, the experience of Adam and Eve. We all follow that narrative. We all follow that story. It's our, their experience is our experience. But on this model, the idea is that after Adam, after the fall of Adam, We all begin outside the garden, separated from God and still born in a state of guilt and or depravity. It's a very different story, very different way of understanding humanity. We are born with a sinful nature. We are incapable of responding to God. The Imago Dei is obliterated. We are totally incapable. Just as a dead body is dead, and not capable of anything without God's intervention. So we are spiritually on this, on this point of view, which of course necessitates some concept of election and, and or intervention from God to allow faith. If we were doing a seminar and we had all afternoon, we could talk a lot about that and unpack that more, but for our purposes we need to move on. Messiah brings forgiveness and healing, but the focus of Messiah's work is atonement. The focus of Messiah's work is atonement, specifically providing a a propitiatory 
that is appeasing God's wrath, and a substitutionary, that is Jesus took our place, Jesus paid our penalty, sacrifice. On the first model, the first model says, yes, all of that is important and part of the parcel. The second model says, yeah, but that's 99% of it. That's the difference I'm trying to emphasise. And so atonement as a rich, kind of like a multifaceted diamond gets reduced to one aspect, really. Um, Substitutionary atonement is the way that the theologians describe it. I hope you get the sense of the difference, though, in those two different stories, those two different ways of understanding the human story. And as I already suggested, I think number one is closest to the biblical narrative than than number two, as popular and as common as number two has become among believers. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, what a statement that is. Here is the doom and gloom. We were of our own choice alienated from God, dead in our trespasses and our sins, without hope, And many of us don't even realise it. Like those poor Filipinos walking around Manila or any other major city, exposing themselves unwittingly to that danger. God, who is merciful, and mercy is the idea of not getting what you deserve. God who is gracious. And grace, of course, is the idea of getting what you don't deserve. The picture of unconditional love on God's part, despite us loving the unlovable. We're made alive again, says Paul, in union with Christ. We become reanimated, resurrected. Christ experience is our experience in him. And I I want to emphasise this as we move on. This has come off the back of Paul's statement in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, when he talks about the exaltation of Christ. And listen to these words. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. That's the Christ that we serve. Raised to glory. What a privilege it is to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. But don't miss this point. Paul has now proceeded to emphasise to the church that the Christ's experience is our experience. He has brought us along with him. Just as Christ died, we were dead. 
But just as Christ was raised from the dead by God, so too we've been raised from the dead. Not just raised, but as Jesus was glorified following his resurrection, so we are raised up with him in glory. Our present status is reigning with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast but God. Our present glory in Christ will be taken to the next level, if you will, with our future glory in Christ. We are raised from the dead now in Christ, forgiven of sins, receiving the Spirit of God. In the process as a work in progress, under construction, through the Spirit of God we are being renovated Sanctification is what the scripture calls it. We have all of that now, but it's only a taste of what's to come when the Lord returns, when we are bodily resurrected, when we enter into glory with him in the new heavens and the new earth. We are, seems to me, this is what Paul's getting at, We are the church, we are exhibit A. You know, poor old God gets a lot of criticism. Ah, if I were, if I were in charge, I'd do things differently. I'd run the world differently. I would have created, I would have made things differently. Poor old God gets a lot of, you know, suffering. There's an awful lot of suffering in the world. How do we explain that? How does, how does God justify himself? Well, without dumbing it down too much, being simplistic, if you will, a large part of that is expressed in the church, in God's redemption of his people in Christ. Now, no pressure, folks, no pressure. But to the degree that we live up to God's hopes for us, that we would be transformed into the image of his son, that we would be a people, remember Ephesians chapter 1, blessed with all blessings, all heavenly blessings in Christ, that we would be to the praise of his glory. Paul hasn't forgotten that yet (laughs) when he gets to this point in the letter. Neither should we. We are exhibit A. You know, you want to criticise all of the pain and suffering and how it could have been different? That's why it's worthwhile. That's why the risk of love is worthwhile. That's why the suffering of my son was worthwhile. Look at these redeemed ones. Look at what it could have been, should have been like for all of them, for all of creation. 
How important are you? Really, really. How important are we as the children of God? We are saved and salvation has to do with people being rescued from a fate they otherwise would have incurred, whether they're conscious of it or not. We are saved. By grace, that is, it's God's initiative, through faith, which is the Bible's way of describing our response to God's grace. Not your own doing, says Paul, it's God's gift. It's not of works, there's nothing for us to boast about in the process. Salvation, it's all God's initiative, it's all God's doing. The only question for us is, will we respond to God's grace and mercy expressed through Jesus Christ in belief? That is, faith, trust. I like the word allegiance. Allegiance. Who will we give our allegiance to? Or, the other alternative, of course, is unbelief. Remaining, to use Paul's language, children of disobedience. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Workmanship. And the reason I've included this Greek term is so you recognise that one, poeme. Now, what's an English word that sounds a lot like that? Poem. And you'd be right. We are God's poetry. We are God's artistry. We are God's masterpiece. We are new creations in Christ. Yes, works in progress, under construction. You know, you may be sitting there as a Christian and you might be thinking, I don't feel that good. (laughs) I don't feel that great. I don't feel that outstanding. But understand this, you are a work in progress. And this is an expression of God's confidence in you. And this is an expression of God's long-term vision of what lies ahead. The glory that lies ahead for his people. Our architect and our builder already knows the final outcome. We need to, in responding to God through faith, which remember, in essence, is trusting God. We need to go with the flow to follow God to be led where God will lead us. We need to be God's instruments in this world. No brainer. Self-evident. I want to close with this thought. God's grace makes God vulnerable. I think this is one of the most amazing things about God. And we talked about this morning in various ways how big God is, how great God is. And that's true. But how amazing is it that that big, strong God allows himself to be vulnerable allows himself to be weak in being open to being hurt. 
exemplified, of course, in the incarnation. God, laying aside the glory that was his, humbled himself to become a man. And we read those early narratives of the life of Christ, that defenceless, totally dependent human baby. who grew up in that hostile environment of sin to experience fully what it is to be human and there was a lot of pain involved in that. A lot of pain and heartache and betrayal, ultimately suffering and rejection, shame on the cross. He nonetheless made himself open, vulnerable to all of that because of his grace. Exemplified in God's choosing us as his partners in redeeming his creation. In his letter to the Romans, Paul talks about vessels that are made of clay. Things that are fragile can be broken And that's what we are. That's what we are. And God knows that. So we need not worry about not being perfect Christians, super Christians or however you might conceive of that. All God wants of us is to be people of faith, sincerely and humbly seeking to understand and follow his will and to live his will through our lives to live the gospel through our lives. That's all he asks of us. He knows that some of us will, will bring forth you know, a hundredfold, others sixtyfold, others thirtyfold. God's big enough to understand all that stuff and he's happy to work with that. He's happy to take the risk knowing that we're less than perfect. But that's the point of grace, isn't it? That's the point of grace. That's the marvel of God. So we conclude with this statement, Paul's final words, verse 10, a reminder again from the message by Eugene Peterson. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, partners with God, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do. This isn't an afterthought. This is something God's prepared before eternity. It's all going according to plan and we have the privilege of being invited to come on board with God. Work we had better be doing. Come on, guys. What a privilege it is. What an amazing privilege it is to be a child of God. How could we be negligent or indifferent, slothful about our service to God? This is our way in faith of saying thank you.